true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio, where we bring the message of justice all around the world. The conversation going on here at AJC Radio and around the country is police accountability, transparency that has gone missing within law enforcement. We're going to deal with that final part of our series tonight. We have Commander Commander Couch here with us, as well as a local officer, Andrea, will be joining us given her perspective, and I'll tell you what, folks, this is something that has to be discussed. How different is it in other countries, the criminal justice system, versus here in the United States? We're going to take a look at the horrors of the United States, some things that are going on in other countries. I'll tell you what, it's a conversation we have to have. This is AJC Radio. We take off right now. There you have it. I'm Lamont Banks along with David Banks, Henrik Barnes, Dave Zapolo, Sapson Riddle, William Williams, Demetrius Harper, Quentin Stewart, as well as Dennis Merritt. And again, our guests that are going to be chiming in into this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Samson, as we get ready to take off in this conversation, uh, a lot of differences down to how people are even treated in some foreign countries uh, when it comes to confinement, when it comes to uh, rehabilitation. Uh, how important is it that we go down this conversation tonight? Well, I think in, in this conversation, I mean, all American citizens need to like pay attention to what we're going to be talking about tonight. Because if you look at the statistics, I mean, numbers don't lie. We have 5% of the world's population, yet we host 25% of the world's incarcerated population. Like, the United States has a lot to learn from, you know, our neighbors across the pond about how to treat people that have been incarcerated, how to actually provide rehabilitation versus just advertising it, you know, through some government outlets like the system we have in place right now does not rehabilitate people at all now take a take a look across you know the ocean at some of our european neighbors and they have things in place where we are literally have a quarter of the incarcerated personnel and more success in actually getting citizens to go back into the populace and be productive in uh in that population so i mean we have a lot of notes to take from from our neighboring countries. That should be a good one. Commander, thanks for joining us. We're glad to have you back in studio. Uh, your thoughts on this subject? Well, it's a very important subject. Uh, if there's a better model out there somewhere, we need to uh, take note of that and see what we can do to change things here. If it's working there, it can work here. Absolutely. Andrea, we're so happy to have you here with us. Uh, your thoughts on this subject. And we're, again, a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Um, I think... Uh, there's definitely place for improvement in the United States when it comes to rehabilitation. I have studied criminal justice and um, doing research, I noticed the only maximum security prisons offer an actual good rehabilitation program yes. for people. So I think it can definitely improve. Okay, we appreciate uh, you and, and look forward to hearing your uh information stories that you have to share from uh, other places that you've seen uh, different actions with law enforcement things like that we look forward to that okay folks feel free to dial into the show the number is 646-200-0628 feel free to dial in as we get into this discussion the other side of the break we're coming back i'll tell you what it's going to be an interesting conversation uh we shared with you before some of the horrors that people are terrified of. Uh, Now, make no mistake about it. There are areas uh, around the globe that are horrific uh, when it comes to confinement, uh, being in custody in in, uh, jails and in prisons around the world. Some are, they're very, very bad. But the United States needs to take a look at their system uh, that has failed, continues to fail. Uh, as we house and warehouse human beings uh, in a way that is inhumane. Uh, Why uh, we dealt with people dying in custody and and being charged with the crime. How are they leaving in body bags? Why is that happening when they've simply been accused? They have not been convicted of anything. With a conviction, you still don't leave leave dead. Something is wrong with the culture, which we've been hitting on over the last few weeks. David, your thoughts? Uh, as we get ready to go forward here as well, before we take a break. Yeah, I just want to uh, piggyback off what Samson was talking about. Uh, you know, Germany right now has half the recidivism rate of the United States. And uh, by and large, uh, they do things differently. They, they use a process called normalization, 
Uh, and some of the U.S. Uh, correctional officials, corrections officials actually visited Germany, Norway, and other Scandinavian-type countries. And it, there's a visible difference between crime and punishment and uh, rehabilitation. And I think it's critically important that their methods, even in Germany, and uh, some of the corrections officials found it just kind of uh, unbelievable what they were seeing. But it was it's it's effective. Connecticut has actually the city of Connecticut has actually adopted some of these uh, uh, some of these uh, policies uh, used uh, in European prisons. I, I think I think it's really interesting, and I'll be getting into some more details about uh, that. And I and I've actually came prepared with information uh, concerning uh, those differences. Well, good. Uh, we're going to get into all of that. Uh, I'll tell you what: when you have human beings crouched down in cages with padlocks put on these cages as if they are some type of human kennels, uh, you're going to have a problem. Uh, we're going to hear some sounds from solitary confinement in prisons right here in the United States. It is troubling but necessary. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Odds of becoming an astronaut, 1 in 13,200,000. Odds of being struck by lightning, 1 in 576,000. Odds of dating a supermodel, 1 in 88,000. Odds of bowling a perfect game, 1 in 11,500. Odds of being trapped in an elevator, 1 in 24,528. Odds of catching a ball at a major league game, 1 in 563. Odds of an injury from shaving, 1 in 6,585. Odds of tripping while texting, 1 in 10. Odds of getting cancer in your lifetime, 1 in 2 men, 1 in 3 women. It's up to us to change the odds for our generation. For the ones we love. For our future. If you don't like the odds, stand up. Stand up to cancer. History is important because it shows where you're coming from and where you're going. Type 2 diabetes is something that runs in my family, which means I'm at risk. In fact, one in three American adults are at risk for developing type 2 diabetes. And knowing this, if I do nothing, that family history becomes my family's future. And my family is too important to me for that. Take the risk factor assessment today at AskGreenNo.com. There are no loose ends in TV procedural dramas. At the end of the hour, the bad guy always gets what's coming to him. Unfortunately, the real world is a lot more complicated. We know from the work of the Innocence Project and other organizations in the Innocence Network that the system doesn't always get it right. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, since 1989, nearly 2,000 people have been exonerated of crimes they didn't commit. What people don't realize is a good number of those people pleaded guilty to crimes even though they were innocent. In fact, in nearly 10% of the nation's DNA exonerations, people pleaded guilty to serious crimes and agreed to serve significant prison time because the system is stacked against them, especially if they are poor and people of color. That's right. The stakes are so high that we have innocent men and women agreeing to serve long prison sentences. A system that puts that much pressure on people to plead guilty is a problem. Visit guiltypleadproblem.org to learn more about the men and women who are pressured into pleading guilty to crimes 
they didn't commit. And join us in demanding that our elected officials do something to protect the innocent people who get caught up in a broken criminal justice system. Thank you. We know you care. Now it's time. Time to change the face of justice. Did you know that minority and youth participation in juries is extremely low to non-existent? The incidence of youth and minority offenders faced with trials have exploded. Youth and minorities are not being represented as they should be. We must represent for people to get fair trials. If you acquire a state ID or driver's license, it allows you to register to vote. And it allows you to become eligible for jury service. If you're 18, a U.S. citizen with a state ID or driver's license, and registered to vote, you're eligible to be called for jury duty. If called and selected, make it your duty to serve. We can't get justice without you. Change. 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 Change the face of justice. Check your local county or state jury service website for further details. Almost 40 children die of heat stroke after being forgotten in a vehicle in 70-degree weather. It takes only minutes for the inside of a car to heat up like an oven. At 104 degrees, heat stroke begins, followed by loss of consciousness. Yeah. We've got an hour and a half or so. Kids in Cars. I wish I was in school. If only I had a math test today. Or a book report to give. I wish I was in school. gentlemen to AJC Radio tonight as we again go down the path of really an unfamiliar area but very troubling area dealing with police transparency accountability with officers the really the state of the union if you will of law enforcement in the United States and compared to other countries uh, around the globe uh, we're very special we're very we're happy rather to have our special guest tonight commander couch is back with us he's the uh, operations commander for Taylor County Sheriff's Office, also uh, local officer Andrea 
uh, is in the in the studio. She's going to give us some insight of what she's seen um, uh, in Colombia, some of the things and comparisons that she has actually witnessed. And we're going to get her perspective as an officer. Uh, and how long have you been an officer now? Uh, about five years. About five years. So I'm telling you, she's seen some things uh, that could definitely give some insight to this conversation. Folks, feel free to dial in 646-200-0628, 646-200-0628. What I'm going to play really quick uh, for you guys, uh, and Andrea uh, and Commander, this is troubling what you're going to hear uh, in regards to, uh, it's called the sounds of, confi- of solitary confinement. Uh, it is the most horrific thing. When we first found this clip, uh, it was very, very troubling because what you hear, uh, you would never think it was a human uh, where humans were actually lodged at or where they were actually confined to. Uh, let's play that clip. We're going to get your thoughts on the other side of it. Well, there you have it. Um, Commander, give me your thoughts of what you just heard. Again, this is a solitary confinement, sounds of solitary confinement. Um, The banging that you hear many times is the heads of these inmates banging their heads against really steel doors, uh, bleeding, bleeding. 
it's some it's some horrific stuff. Give me your thoughts on what you just heard. Well, it's kind of hard to determine if some of those sounds were made by a human or some other kind of animal. You know, uh, that was kind of striking to me, and those loud noises sound like gunshots to me. So my PTSD was kind of, uh, you know, affected by that. Um, and and, the, and the, the sounds that some of them are making it sounds like it sounds like someone is being psychologically tortured. Yeah. Andrea? Um, yeah, same thing the commander said. Um, what's inter- interesting about this is that there was a case law. And in the case law, they talk about how inhumane isolation is um, and how it can affect a person. They become antisocial. Um, they, they just become very, very, very different. And even like if they're there for a week, it affects a human being. Um, now imagine this person in the case law, that person was locked for three months. And when he came out, he was just aggressive towards other people because right. he didn't know how to interact with them. Right. So yeah, I, I think it's terrifying to be in isolation and scary. Well, absolutely right. And look, if if we are here about rehabilitating, which is, again, it's a front word, uh, Department of Corrections, meaning this is a place where we correct you, where you can get better. Uh, it is exactly the opposite. To be honest with you, if you're honest, uh, and I've seen the pictures of inmates in jumpsuits in cages that only had enough room enough for them to be in that cage crouched down, that they're in there for, for that period of time. The psychological, as Andrea alludes to here, effect uh, of people getting out of prison, period. The majority of people are going to walk out of prisons. They're going back at some point to society. What are we creating? And again, they don't want you to see this. Department of Corrections of any state in this country, they do not want you to see this. Why is that? Because it's inhumane is what it is. That's somebody's father, their brother, their sister. Uh, we had a young lady on the line, research team can find out, not on the line, but from New York, who spent a torture chamber, really, in Rikers Island. And she began to express uh, the torture she went through at Rikers and how they she got there and they said, we're going to take you to the hunting, to the penthouse suite, so to speak. And they took her to the fourth floor, the highest floor at Rikers, but it wasn't the penthouse suite by any means. And there she was violated with different objects and instruments. And when you hear her talk and tell her story, it is heart wrenching. Uh, why does that go on? And she's free today. She's an advocate today. Uh, I believe it's Kathy Morse, uh, and we're going to see if research can get her on the line to call into the show to share a few things with us. It is heart-wrenching uh, in regards to what we have seen. And, and I think, Andrea, your perception of that, your, uh, the torture of that, the, the horrifying part of that, and to the Columbia's point, I mean, to the commander's point, excuse me, Columbia, uh, to the commander's point, to say that you cannot distinguish whether it's an animal or a human being, being tortured? 
that speaks volumes. That's very, very bad. Kendrick, you're, you, you had a you had something. And I was just kind of piggybacking off your point. It's near impossible to get the press and decide, especially the federal prisons, just to get a view of what's going on in there. So the general public has no idea how a person is being treated. They can't check on them. Your family can't come and see what's going on in there. So there's, so really, it, you're in a black box, especially when you're in solitary. You're in there alone. I mean, you don't know. No one knows what's going on in there but you, what's going on in your head. The officers are kind of trained to, or conditioned to not care because, you know, you're, you're having a mental issue. These are not mental professionals. They're just paid to the security watch guard. over you. Yeah, the security guard. So it's, it's, I think that's something in this culture that needs to change. It's like, you know, these are citizens supposedly protected under the Constitution, regardless of how they got to where they were. They do have human rights. So it well, should be at least, you know, let the public see and, you know, at least care about these people that are still the, incarcerated. The reason they don't see it, and David, I'm coming to you, and to David Apollo, to your point. They're not allowed to see it for one reason. This is the culture of institutions of confinement. They would never show that. If you go to the websites of these prisons, you're going to find where it looks like they're getting three squares a day. And if you look at the food on the plate, you would think this has to be a restaurant uh, caliber meal. That is a complete joke. That is a joke. And what you're fed, depending on these type of individuals that are in solitary confinement, they have what they call the loaf, is what they call it. Look, it is every type of food that you can throw in into an oven and a dough. And it's punishment. And they say, you're going to eat this until you do this. You're going to eat that. The whole culture is messed up. And we're going to, Andre, I'm going to get to you. I want you to tell us a little bit about uh, your background in Colombia, things that you've seen. She, she, she was sharing with us during the break how people were terrified to come to the United States, to be here for uh, any type of extradition uh, where they had to suffer uh, or, or be accountable, per se, for crime because of what the world sees the United States and their criminal justice system as. David. Well, and it's, it starts with uh, like you said, it starts with the Supreme Court and the Eighth Amendment says cruel and unusual punishment. So they've given the criminal justice system or the correction system a license to be cruel under the law. Now, in the 60 Minutes uh, story where the director for the Pennsylvania uh, uh, Department of Correction, John Wetzel, his comment was, Frankly, we screwed up the correction system for 30 years, and it's time to do something different. He said it really starts with understanding a human, a human being's value isn't diminished by being incarcerated. Wetzel, uh, he also mentioned that he would like prisons in the U.S. to look more like prisons in Germany, but he also understands how hard it would be to convince the majority of Americans so you're talking about the American people here mm -hmm. that a more lenient penal system can work. And he said, so when you talk about the American people accept this, this hang them high mentality, this stigma of a felony, this perpetual punishment that will last a lifetime. Uh, they approve of the criminal justice system. I don't know if make us feel they're a little more self-righteous or makes them feel like it's just a very sick 
sick system and the American people accepted it. If they didn't accept it, things would change. And so it's accepted at the court level and fundamentally at the cultural level that you're supposed to be cool to prisoners. And finally, uh, you talk to the, uh, the prison officials there in Germany, he said the real goal is reintegration in society. In, in society. Okay, that's their goal. The United States goal is, our real goal is to punish you and try to make you feel like you never want to come back to prison. And there, there's a reason there, uh, then they have half the recidivism rate as the United States. So per capita, the United States locks up more people than any other nation. There's always this prison thirsty uh, mentality that we have to lock everybody up. And they've even Germany and, and other European countries got away from sending nonviolent offenders to prison. You something has got to give with the cruelty of this system. Well, I'll tell you this. Uh I forget Van Sloot, Van der Sloot guy, uh commander shakes his head, you know what I'm talking about in Aruba. And in Aruba that they don't even give anybody the maximum you're gonna get in that country for murder is twenty five years. You're not gonna you're not gonna get more than that. You got the United States sentencing people to double and triple life sentences? Four hundred years? When you know the life, you're not going to live to four hundred. That's number one. But it is a mental cruel abuse to mentally say, Look, we'll give you a thousand years. They thought it has a thousand years for people. The culture, as David alludes to here, is cool. It's a very cold, cool situation. Um, how do you send somebody to that and feel justified in doing so? We're going to give you double life without parole. That's simply a life sentence. But if I tell you it's double life, I mentally have violated you. That's what I've done. Um, I'm going to hear from Andrea now. Andrea, the, to me, these are these are facts that are indisputable. What David points out, the reason if the if the American people saw, but they believe based upon what's being sold to the American people that this is okay. These are criminals. You don't want them in your neighborhood. <clears throat> but the majority are getting out. If I plant that in the minds of people that, you know. These are animals. You don't want to give them a place to live. They can't get a job in many cases other than very hard labor. Nobody wants to rent them an apartment where they have to live. I don't care where you've been. You have to have a place to live. And then you want to have a hard time getting them a job. How do you expect them not to return to the way of life of prison? Correct. And I agree right? with you. Like um, I think in a way a prison – the serve a sentence should go back to society or to the community and should learn from the rehabilitation, not a punishment, a rehabilitation right. um, and be able to bring something to the community. So give them a new opportunity for right. them to become better and to learn from their mistakes. And that's not the case here. No, and I, no, a lot of times it's not, unfortunately. Well, says Andrea, you're from a small town in Colombia. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Is it Julia? Huila. 
what is it? Wheeler. Wheeler, okay. Uh, you were born and raised in Columbia. At age 17, you moved to the United States with your father. Said you had an obsession with law enforcement. Yes. Tell us about that. Um, since I was a kid, um, my mom told me that when I saw security guard people, I thought they were police officers, and I would run to them to try to talk to them because I wanted to be one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always saw them as um, they're going to protect the community. They're going to be there for people. So I, I was obsessed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I I always liked that, um, protect other people. Even in high school, I wanted to make sure everybody was not being bullied or anything like that. So you were the person that said, look, stop bullying this person. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, an obsession may be a different word. I know that's what's there. Yeah. But you had a passion and a drive. Correct. Yeah, that's a better word. your perception of law enforcement was to do good. Yes. Um, did it come out that way in your mind as you began to see things? Um, so as I was growing up, I started to realize how law enforcement in Colombia was, um, how they were easily being brave, like bribery by other people being paid off. And I didn't like that. Um, I was even told that if I wanted to become a police officer and do good, I was going to get killed because I was going to be one of the few that wanted to do something good for the community. Um, so let me make sure I heard you right. You were threatened if you did good. Yes. That you would die. Pretty much, yeah. So, where, where did you hear that from? Uh, from multiple people in Colombia. Because, okay. um, I, I, like I said, I always wanted to be a police officer, so I talked to many people. I even went to a class when I was a kid to do traffic. Uh, with the police, and it was like a week long, I think, and it was just something that I wanted to learn more about it. But it was scary, and being a female is scary. Being in, in that career, yes. Yeah, is, is it scary? Is it is it as scary here in the United States? No, but totally different in Colombia. Completely different. Um, but you kept at it. Yeah, so I changed my mentality. Uh, I wanted to become a pilot. And when I moved here, I never thought that I was going to be able to become a police officer because of the language barrier, um, because of how small I am, I guess. Right. <laughs> and I just never thought I was going to have that opportunity. And my husband was actually the one that told me, you know what, put for the police academy and see what happens. Cool. Did, got hired, and here you are. I, I love it. <laughs> yeah. okay. And you work with the commander? I work in Colorado. <laughs> work in Colorado. Got you. Uh, so you, you're kind of liking, you're kind of liking things, and, and things are going well for you. Yes, I do, and I, I, I'm here today because I wanna see a change. Okay. I wanna be able to bring our community closer to law enforcement. Okay, and uh, I think I asked you about the the George Floyd situation. Um, a lot of officers that I saw on social media were outraged. Yes. Um, I saw a lot of tears from cops that said, look, we're not Derek Chauvin. That's not who we are. And they called it for what it was. Um, when you saw that, what was your overall thoughts as you witnessed something like that? You know, you as a police officer, you always think, what would I do differently? Um, if I was in that scenario, um, how would I react? You know, everybody reacts different. I think I would have handled it completely different. Um, 
you don't put your knee on somebody's neck for a long period of time. They teach you that in the academy. Do not do this because you're going to hurt somebody. When you get to an agency, they have policy and they tell you, do not do this. And they do training and that way you don't hurt anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it was, it, it made me very upset um, that they didn't listen to him, to his body. We, like somebody said earlier, we're not trained to be medics or anything like that. Right. But you do realize at a point that somebody's not doing right physically. So you call medics to make sure that they're doing okay or what's going on. Yeah, for sure. And you don't put somebody on their stomach for so long. If you're going to hold somebody, you're going to move them to the side, and you're going to sit them down before somebody gets there to check on them. And what was so bizarre about the George Floyd situation? Did you ever come into it? Well, I was just going to say, um, even though <clears> – <throat> It's happened to me several times over my career. You may fight somebody for three minutes, but once they're in custody, they're your responsibility, and that's a human being. It's not – it's a human being. So everybody knows that if you take somebody's airway away for over a couple, three minutes or so, there's going to be catastrophic consequences. Correct. Well, look, they take better care of, of, of animals. I dare you to go outside – See someone abusing a dog, and I love dogs. They're just great creatures, uh, and they're lovable. I promise you, if you go outside here at this studio tonight and somebody is torturing a dog, I can promise you every person is going to say, what are you doing and make an attempt to stop them? A dog, because it's just not proper. Uh, and, and like Andrea, you say, I don't have to be a medic to know that this guy is telling you he cannot breathe. He is showing labored, very labored breathing. He cannot, he cannot continue. You don't have to be a genius to figure that one out. And, and Andrea says, look, you're taught in the academy. You can't do that. You don't do that. And she goes right back to the point that we heard the entire uh, George Floyd trial after he was killed, why didn't you put him on his side? Why didn't you set him up? They had George Floyd sitting up against a wall initially outside of the store. He wasn't a threat. He sat down. He caused, He was not a threat in any way to these officers. Secondly, you say he used a, 20, a fake $20 bill, which is not even an arrestable thing. You know what it is? Citation. If that, or do you just say, look, the policy at the store was if somebody brings in a counterfeit piece of money, if you accept it, you are responsible as the clerk. That's store policy. George Floyd should have never been called. The cops should have never been called in that situation based upon the policy of the store. They went back in the store two or three times off of a $20 bill, which I heard later was legitimate, was an actual $20 bill. $20 cost this man his life because somebody was out of order uh, in what they did. I'm coming right back to you, Andrea. William, go ahead. You know, um, it's really amazing what when you say – the commander said that at that, that point, that restraint is in place. He, that person is now your responsibility. And I think that's something that we you can understand 
but you never see. Because as he was talking, I was thinking about Freddie Gray. Freddie Gray was detained in Baltimore. He was in custody of six officers in transit and then shows up with catastrophic injuries. I think it was something to sever spleen, uh, a spinal injury. He later uh, died. And when you think about that, you said at that at that point that that person has they cannot they cannot do anything for themselves. Mm-hmm. I mean, their hands are behind their back. They're they're there in custody. Where when does it? It's like it never dawns on these officers that we see that human that humanity that compassion. And we talked about this last time when you were here uh, with George Floyd. Where when does that kick in? He's like, okay, now the fight's over. I, I'm here to do a job, but this is a person. And so when does that – it's like it's lost. I, I agree with you. Um, sometimes it's an impulse control problem, uh, and this is no excuse, but officers get hyped up on adrenaline. And just like in my situation, I explained last time I was here or the time before when I just came out of the police academy, um, the situation was over. I had it under control. The person was in custody. But you have officers running up after a 100-mile-an-hour pursuit for – about eight minutes or so they're full of adrenaline we have to learn and we have to teach officers mechanisms to control that at the end of of an event because i've seen a lot of people suffer at the hands of of officers who i think just were just you know uh, unable to control their chemicals and their impulses at that moment and that's 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 one thing there's there's many other things and then, then there's the officers who just you know, and I'll admit I didn't have a lot of compassion when I first got out on the street. I'll be honest with you, but one thing changed my whole life, and that was when I arrested a uh, a uh, Hispanic man for disorderly conduct. And um, I felt like I needed to make that arrest. And I remember his he was fighting with us, and I remember his wife looking me in the face and said, "You don't have to do this." And I think maybe, you know, that was a turning point. That was very early in my career, very a turning point, and uh, I realized that. You know, these are human beings. When they train you as a police officer, you're you're supposed they train you to survive everything. They don't really train you how to survive yourself. Got you. Um, I mean, that's a good point. And and so I think the human side of training of officers, the human factor, has to be on the top of the agenda when you're in a, whether you're at the police academy. Uh, but what you have here is a difference in what you have is a culture shock. And culture is the most embedded uh, thing in society that is the most difficult thing to break is culture. Because once that culture is, is in concrete, I'm telling you, and, and like the commander says, you know, officers are, are hyped up, man. You know what? And get an officer that's been chasing you for about three miles, uh, however, whatever it is, they're mad. Man, you got me running out here? Why didn't you just – so by the time they – and again, it's not an excuse, as the commander says, but there, you have to be trained to be a professional. Um, and everybody that you're chasing down is not, a, is not a mass murderer. They're not trying to kill you. Andrea, I want to come back to you in regards to what you were sharing with us about Columbia. Um, so all that you saw, the threats that came your way, that, look, if you do good – you're going to ultimately end up dead because people don't want a good Samaritan interfering with business, correct? so to speak, right? Yeah. Uh, there has to be, 
a type of drive with you that, and, and make no mistake about it, Columbia is not Disney World. Not at all. By any means, right? No. Uh, a, a lot of threats there, a lot of threats. Tell us a little bit about as you progressed here, you moved here, your husband uh, ended up saying, look, take a shot. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I guess I, I kind of want to talk a little bit more about what the police is in Colombia. Yep. Um, many, many people don't know what's going on right now. And it's actually a I've never seen something like this. And police a lot of police brutality is happening in Colombia and it's extremely sad and it bores me because uh, my family is down there. My entire family is down there. And even if they're not included in the protests or anything like that, I mean, these police are taking control and going into people's houses and doing things that they should not do. Um, Right now, there have been so many deaths in Colombia by police and these police had not been held accountable for it. Um, and that, I think that's one of the differences I see from the United States versus Colombia. And here, police officers, I believe, are held accountable for their actions. Versus uh, what you've seen in Colombia. Correct. Uh, it states here that um, crisis in Colombia right now has been reported that 43 people have been killed by Colombian police in which none of law enforcement officers are placed on leave nor removed from police force. Um, You said earlier that a lot of these officers are um, being bought. Right. Is that related to the cartel down there? What's what's going on with that? Yes. So there is a peace agreement in Colombia that is happening right now. And this peace agreement is allowing... People from the guerrilla, which is like the terrorist group in Colombia, um, to keep, come into society and supposedly do good, but it actually has harmed Colombia. So when Pablo Escobar was alive, there was a lot of production of cocaine. Well, right now is reported to be even higher than what Pablo Escobar was because of this peace agreement, which right. the police and the military are not allowed to go into the forest to destroy the cocaine production correct um so and and that's where i guess police are involving themselves so as maybe i mentioned on the paper police officers don't get paid there a lot 700 700 a month um and now now count food and everything they, they don't have enough to pay everything everything so what is their solution Okay, give me money. I'll do this for you. I'll protect uh, you, and that way I can have money for myself and be able to survive. Okay, so, so as a result of the financial stress uh, on Colombian officers out there, then the groups that have come in, uh, and then when you're dealing with cartel stuff, you know what are they doing on the side there? I mean, are we running? What are we doing? We're doing something because, like you said, if I don't have enough to take care of my family, uh, then I can be bought out. Well, by groups that are dealing in levels of, like you said, since Escobar has died, uh, it's higher uh, than the offer is higher. Um, 
that has to be very scary. Oh yeah, right? extremely, extremely. Because I, I know there's good police officers in Colombia. They want to do good, but because there's so many, you can you can show that you can show that there's some good in there, and to protect those police officers, they want to do good. And so there's not enough resources to protect them. Correct. Right? So if you have, so that when I tell you, did you have a comment for better? I was just going to ask you, Andrea, um, don't you think that it, it seems like if there's some kind of peace agreement between the government and these narco-terrorists, yeah. uh, it's kind of a system set up from the top for failure? Yeah, correct. It's, it's always been like that, to be honest. Uh, it's gotten worse, and people, I think, have come to realize there's something we have to do for our country to be better. We can be a better country, um, but the government has to listen to us, and that's why the protest is going on. And it, it started, I believe, in at the beginning of April, and it's still going. Yeah. Um, so the protest you're talking about? Yes. Um, so they're outmanned, it sounds like, yeah. because of the wherever you got big money, big production of of, of cocaine or whatever drugs. That's where the power is. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, um, and I'm hopeful, uh, what are your thoughts? That, do you think the protests are going to help, or there's simply just not enough manpower? Uh, this, so for instance, you don't have enough good because people fear their lives. They fear for their lives. Man, you know what? If I come out here and oppose this with these type of players, what happens to my family, my kids? I think that's a very tough question, to yeah. be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of people are coming forward and fighting for their rights and fighting to have a better country, but power is just too hard to fight yeah. if you are on top of the government. It's just hard. And I, I think they will try to cover up and trying to do something just to calm people down, but there is going to continue. But the core of the problem remains. Yes. Yeah, that's un that's unfortunate. If someone, I thought somebody had a comment. Demetrius? Uh, just uh, a little bit. Uh, this question is for Andrea in regards to, you mentioned the difference when the uh, Columbia, uh, someone that was going to be extradited. Could you kind of elaborate on the differences that you've seen as a law enforcement officer? Why, you know, uh, a Colombian wouldn't want to be in prison here or jailed here versus Colombia. Could you kind of elaborate and give us an insight on that? Yeah. So um, the Colombian prison uh, system, the correctional system down there, is very poor. Uh, people don't have cells like they do here. They don't have much um, personal or private time, like going to the bathroom, having food, having water. Um, in Colombia, it's just, uh, maybe, I don't know what word to use, but it's almost a disaster. Yes. Um, and people and, and people can be, police officers can be paid off for, for these persons to have a better life or time in Colombia. They, have, they bring uh, females to, to jail, they bring drugs, they bring anything if you paid a police officer, so it will allow different different uh, benefits. So to yes, uh, so people are very scared of coming to the United States or being extradited to the United States because they don't have that 
luxury per se. Like that. Yes. They police officers are harder to buy in the United States. Way harder. Um because there's policy, there's rules that they have to follow. Yeah. Um, so, like going back to Pablo Escobar, he was trying to become a political a political figure, so he could stop extradition from happening in Colombia because he knew he was gonna get caught and not being brought up to the United States. People are scared. So his position was, if I get in political power. Uh, not only do I protect myself, I protect anybody or any runners yes. uh, that I have under my organization. Yes. Where as high as in in government that you go, corruption uh, goes higher. Yes. Understood. So, yeah, rules are strict here versus Colombia. People are just are very afraid of coming to the United States because they know they're going to be serving their sentencing. You're not going to have that in most cases in confinement or places here. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you have the corruption here. Uh, it's just a little more, it has a different face on it. Yeah. That's the difference. Uh, but in Colombia and in these places, it's more open. Uh, and people are, because the power of, of those that be uh, are doing and instituting what they want to institute, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, and honestly, in the United States, uh, it's a very much more sophisticated uh, way through, even though we have laws here to protect and rules, uh, the rules are only good as the people. Um, I think as you get higher up sometimes in the criminal justice system here, uh, the laws can be manipulated in ways by prosecutors and judges in a way that's that's just as detrimental uh, where you have police officers on the take, but power corrupts and absolutely absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. And no matter what happens, whether it be Colombia, the United States, power is such a corrupt power of money. And the United States is rich beyond reality. And given, given, the, given that reality, uh, and the corrupting influence of money, it's uh, the back room is open. In Colombia, it appears that the front room is just everybody's doing everything from the front room. In the United States, the stuff is going on in the back room, and things are being manipulated and things are being done, but they do it in a very sophisticated way, and they get uh, many times the powers that be in prosecutors and judges to support them in a way that's in a very uh, malleable way that they kind of use the law to justify a lot of conduct that should not be justified and the violation of constitutional rights in many cases. So uh, I say Colombia has its issues. This country has its issues. I think a lot of lower level police officers, it's easier to be a just a just a standard police officer here than it is in Colombia. Nobody's just going to They'll stay silent here, but uh, being killed is is a is, a, is definitely a, a another level there yeah. in Columbia. Well, Andrea and, and Commander, we're going to come back. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, we're going to come right back, uh, ladies and gentlemen. The conversation is informative. Uh, Andrea, I think what you add to this conversation is, is an eye opener 
And to David's point, you have folks in the back room with corruption in Colombia. They're out of front doing what's going on. Um, uh, it's also with your family down there, and prayers as well. Um, we're going to talk about that on the other side of the break. Get some more insight from Andrea, also from Commander Couch. We're going to, going to deal with this stuff. Folks, this is AJC Radio. The State of the Union of Law Enforcement in the United States, as well as countries abroad, uh, we have an ongoing problem. We're going to deal with it on the other side of the break. This is AJC Radio. criminal justice system is really violating our values as a people. Uh, we are, as a nation, have this land of the free, uh, this nation that, that uh, savors liberty and those ideals, really, that were lights into the globe, uh, now incarcerates more human beings than any other nation on the planet. Like any system, it always needs refining adjustments, and I think that's where we are now. Um, as far as policing is concerned, I think policing in America has done a very effective job over the last uh, two decades because crime is down. Crime is down significantly throughout the country, with some exceptions. Um, and I attribute that to smarter policing, better policing, more effective policing, proactive policing. Policing is in some sense a victim of its own success in the following sense. And that is that crime rates have plummeted in the last 30 years. At the same time, public support, public trust, um, public confidence in policing over the same time period has remained flat. The public actually cares a great deal more about how they are treated uh, by public authorities, legal authorities, than they care about the effectiveness of police. My first experience getting uh, hit with tear gas and rubber bullets was on August 12th, uh, which really radicalized me in a way to want to pursue uh, reform efforts, not only just in Ferguson, but all throughout St. Louis and the entire country. Because, you know, the experience of getting tear gas and hit with rubber bullets was so unbelievable. You know, I, I couldn't imagine something like that could happen in modern day America. If your intention is to, you know, jail massive numbers of people, if you believe that, you know, our prison uh, is an effective means of dealing with the myriad uh, social needs of the African-American community, then, then, it, then it's pretty effective. Now, I know no one would come out and say something like that. You know, that, that sounds insane. Um, but in fact, there's a long history in this country of dealing uh, with problems in the African-American community through criminal justice system, criminalizing social problems in a way that we don't do in other communities. There are about 140,000 people uh, in the United States who are serving life without parole sentences. The number of people serving life without parole sentences in Western Europe is 12. These very long sentences uh, that are being served is a very unusual feature of American criminal justice. They serve very little public safety effect. Really good study shows that we'd have probably 20% less poverty in the United States if we weren't over-incarcerating at the rate that we are because it has such an impact on people's future earnings when they get out of prison, has an impact on their children uh, and their overall quality of life uh, for their families. But in addition to all that, uh, it is uh, disproportionately punishing minorities in this country as well. There's no difference between blacks and whites for using drugs or even dealing drugs, but yet African-Americans are about almost four times more likely to be arrested for that. 
Well, I, I think our criminal justice system um, is working as intended. Um, it is only broken to the extent that our, our society is broken. Almost every day in the news, we hear stories about innocent people who are returning home after spending years in prison for crimes they did not commit. What you may not know is that their problems don't end once the limelight fades. For many wrongfully convicted individuals don't receive a penny for the injustice that they faced. Take the case of Floyd Bledsoe. He spent 16 years in the Kansas prison for murder and rape he did not commit. And while Floyd was eventually exonerated, he lost everything his family, his farm, and decades worth of income. Unfortunately, Floyd's story is not unique. Kansas, along with 17 other states, doesn't have a law to compensate wrongfully convicted individuals for the injustices they've suffered. And in states with compensation laws, many of those are woefully inadequate. We owe it to all the men and women in all 50 states to provide fair compensation to those who've suffered these injustices. Join me in urging our lawmakers to do the right thing by the wrongfully convicted. Go to innocenceproject.org to find out how you can help. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A Just Cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. There's a lot of mud when it rains here and it makes it really hard to find food. There are car bombs every day. My mom worries about me when I go out. Every time I hear the alarm bell go off in school, I think it's an air raid. Sometimes I have nightmares about it. A lot of houses in our neighborhood have been destroyed. I like to close my ears and sing songs whenever the bombs come close. My dad says we have to leave, which makes me scared. I'm worried our new neighbors won't like us. What if they don't understand our religion? Because they don't speak the language, it might be hard for me to make friends. But I know it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be worth it. I just want my family to be safe. But these are not my words. These are not my words. These are not my words. Did you know that over 1.5 million children in America have parents who are incarcerated? These children cope with the pain through drugs, alcohol, anger, and violence. It is so important. It's so important. It is so important for communities to provide preventative and intervention services. Don't make them do it alone. Become a part of the community. 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 Become a part of the community. 
Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. Do you know what this means? Do you? It means you can voice your opinion without censorship or restraint. It means you can say nothing at all. It means you can debate, protest, question, contribute, whenever, wherever. Take it. Embrace it. Say it out loud. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight, as we have found ourselves in a very colorful conversation, and we look at things that many times maybe not completely understood, and we've been talking tonight with our very special guest, Andrea, also our other guest, Commander Couch, addressing different issues. Um this is a troubling, troubling uh, trend. My hat's off to the commander for his service, uh, what he does on a day-to-day basis, and to Andrea as a local officer. Uh, we say thank you uh, for the risks that are taken, the things that are done uh, to secure, hopefully, a better place to live and a better America, but hopefully in, in, in totality, a better world. Um, as as Andrea shared about her family down there in Colombia, um, I, I can't say enough. Our thoughts, our prayers, our hope, our positive thoughts go to that family, to your family, and all those that are down there dealing with what we have just touched in very, very lightly uh, tonight. Um, we have we we have an ongoing problem here, and. I think Andrea, we, we as we talked earlier, you made a statement. You said. A lot of people look to America and the United States as an example um, of what it should be. Yes. Uh, I believe the United States has failed in being the example they need to be to other countries in the criminal justice system, in the law enforcement arena. Uh, and what we've heard just at, at the onset of this show, the sounds of solitary confinement. Um, if that is our example to the world, the United States is in major trouble. Yes. Um, your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, being from Colombia and seeing so much and hearing from my family, they, you know, I believe the United States is an example for Colombia, and we look up to United States to see what they're doing, so we can bring that to our country and maybe bring it to the attention of the government to tell them how to improve things. And, yeah, I believe lately, um, not lately, it's been a while, the criminal justice system has failed in many different ways. Um, And it should be improved just to be able to bring that to other countries. No, absolutely right. Uh, Clint, your thoughts thus far, um, Andrea, the commander, their positions, um, your thoughts? Yeah, uh, I've lived abroad uh, once upon a time, and I understand uh, Andrea's uh, 
comments and observations. You look at the at the United States differently when you're out of this country. You know, you look at you look back at America in a different light. But America, as David mentioned, a lot of stuff is going on in the back room. They don't they don't you know the window dressing looks real good, right. but the stuff the real corruption is handling behind closed doors. They horse trading. There's a lot of and 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 America's lie is so huge that if you get close, you don't see it. It's so gigantic. The entire thing's a lie. And, uh, you know, in a lot of different ways. One of my pet peeves is what they're doing in the uh, prison system. The American people accept it. When they see on TV, uh, this inmate is working for 12 cents an hour, 50 cents an hour. Those are slave wages. But they look at it as a rehabilitation He's been in for 10 years working for 50 cents an hour. Somebody is benefiting from that labor. And if you read uh, uh, Michelle Alexander's uh, book, then you see slavery taken out of the American society in the, in the public eye and it's put behind bars. So that's, that's just one of my sure. pet peeves and, and, and uh, you know, talking about the corruption and so forth. Yeah. But I tell you what, it's, uh, we got a long way to go and a lot of, a lot of people need to get involved to uh, make changes in the system. Dave Zappolo, you had a you had a comment. Well, one of the things that really you see a lot of is the American people and the American prison system is about retribution. And one of the things that really I thought was very interesting is uh, the Vera Institute for Justice. They went over to Germany and looked at their prisons. And one of the things that they came about was it says here that. Every time we spoke to of the American prison conditions, the German officials, as well as incarcerated people, would pause and look at each other. They were stunned. Susan Gerlach, the director general of prison administration for the state of Berlin, said it's unforgivable. I don't think I would ever want responsibility in a system like that. When you have a high-level official saying that they wouldn't even want to be part of the American system. That just shows you how bad we really are. No, 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 it really does. And, and again, the statistics are what they are. You cannot argue with them. Uh, I remember uh, seeing a documentary, I think it may, David, it may have been Norway, uh, where these guys, they showed the housing unit uh, of folks that were confined to this area. Uh, and it was like a hotel room. Uh, they had kitchen utensils where they cooked uh where they did where they did all of that um and the bedroom uh they had a separate bedroom you just went in a room with a bathroom or a toilet um it wasn't cramped it houses a single bed a desk wardrobe tv small bathroom uh the windows looks uh, out onto a grassy hill outside the door there's a kitchenette where a bread knife hangs from the loop string affixed to the wall, a long dining table is scrubbed clean, a couple of shabby but comfortable-looking sofas have been arranged in front of a TV, the faint smell of, of stale cigarette smoke lingers in the air, but uh, this is, but the, the, the return rate, David, on that was below 3%. Is that correct? It all depends. It actually all depends on the actual crime. Now, in Norway, they, long as a person for murder can be sentenced 22 years. Now, they can get a life sentence, 
And if they've been rehabilitated, they'll release them. But if they don't feel like they've been rehabilitated, they stay. They continue to stay until that rehabilitation takes place. And but what's different, the guards are all trained so uh, in psych- treatment, psychology for two years. Wow. And if you look uh, further, you'll see them. They actually sit down. The guard is sitting down with an inmate there, and they're having lunch. lunch. So it's it's a completely different mentality versus the us against them and this we're here to uh, hang you high we're here to ham- bring the hammer down that you see in that's so common in American prisons that and and they actually said that we want to make it so miserable for you here that you don't want to come back but it's backfired it's backfired and the 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 sounds of solitary confinement prove that. On the documentary that I saw, the human treatment was so profound. Uh, the guy that I was speaking of, it may have been Germany on this guy, he was, his family would come and visit him, and they were sitting outside having an ice cream sundae with his kids. Um, but the guy never looked to break out or to move, knowing because you're still confined. You know, and the statement that was made, was we know what we're missing out here. So what you define as treatment or rehab or rehabilitation is the key. I saw that man sitting outside by a lake. He was not violent. He was there. The guy that I'm talking about was there for a violent crime. Well, he actually earned, he earned his that way right up his, to get those privileges. His name was Bernard Jung. Now he was a contract killer who shot a woman to death. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after 15 years, uh, uh, he earned unsupervised weekend furloughs with his family. So he's out by the lake doing this. But his behavior has been stellar stellar throughout so he ended up earning those privileges and his behavior was stellar for 15 years in a human condition in a human uh environment um i mean to go in your room and and to be able to take down a a a pan and cook some food that that's what people don't understand is that prison in at in most part is the separation of those that you love the loss of your freedom period that is prison so you can say, take the barbed wire fence down. They have what they call minimum security. Uh, they call it MR, minimum restricted security at some locations at state facilities. You have you don't have control movement. You can go outside the front door. You can walk around. You can go direct. There's no limited time. You can be back in at nine, ten o'clock at night. And people's behavior is better because I don't want to lose this privilege. To me, it is emotional to me, uh, and before before I get to that point, I need to uh, uh, bring our, our guest. I wanted to call uh, uh, and, and give her get her a chance to talk to the commander and to Andrea. Uh, uh, so let's let's go ahead and bring her on, Kathy Morse. She's uh, she's been a guest of this show. Um, and I think she'll add a little perspective, Andrea, into the commander uh, perspective of some of the stuff. Everybody knows the reputation that Rikers uh, is known for. There's nothing good, to be honest with you, from what I've heard about Rikers in New York. Uh, it's the largest jail 
slash prison complex uh, in the country. Uh, it, as far as when you have county jail, that type of complex and that type of stuff is really, really big. Is, is Kathy with us? I'm here. Good evening. Hello, Kathy. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. And yourself? We're doing good, Kathy. I, we were sitting here tonight getting into this conversation that you popped in my head. And I said, if anybody can speak to the inhumane treatment uh, in, at Rikers and some of the stuff that you shared with us, I cannot tell you how grateful we were uh, to hear your stories and to hear your conversation uh, about what you lived and that you've become a successful advocate out here and a voice really for those that need it the most. Uh, we're joined by Andrea. She's a local officer here from Columbia, uh, has seen some things over in Columbia, and, and as an officer, of course, has seen things here. Uh, commander Couch uh, is the operations commander at the Teller County Sheriff's uh, Office. Uh, he has been here for several uh, weeks, uh, getting his perspective as we have all held our breath uh, at the death of George Floyd and now have began to exhale and look for resolution uh, and solutions to these issues. So thank you for taking a few minutes. Um, I did a, a brief introduction. You can introduce yourself to our guests. I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, some of the things, what's, what's going on with you now, and how did those experiences, though horrific as they were, have they helped along the way of helping those that may have suffered uh, in this criminal justice system that we call a justice system uh, in our country right now? Uh, of course, I've been keeping very busy, um, but my focus is shifting a little. It's focusing now more on the state of New Jersey, and okay. um, that's ha that happens to be where I am now working. Um, okay. I'm I'm with New Jersey Reentry Corporation, and I am a legal services coordinator for them, um, based out of two of their eight offices. Um, but as a part of yeah. that. I'm on a commission for women's reentry. It's a statewide commission, and I sit on the legal and the healthcare committees. So we're heavily involved. Yeah, we're heavily involved, and there's a lot of a lot of issues that are going on right now with the women's state prison. They are finally going to be shutting it down. Oh, they are. Um, yes, yes, yes. Um, the governor announced on Monday that it will be shutting down. The commissioner resigned on Tuesday, um, so we're hoping, you know, yep. to get things taken care of. So, Kathy, they're shutting down because of the abuse, the lack of human treatment there. What, what, what was the what was the motivating factor? Um, it's, it's the reason why they're closing it down is yes, a lot of it has to do with the abuse and the violence um, and the brutality at the hands of correctional officers. Um, it, the facility itself is multiple buildings spread around on, I forget how many acres of land. They're old buildings. They're falling apart. They haven't been modernized. It's just a whole host of things. Um, based on some of the recommendations that the governor got, um, he had appointed an independent um, attorney to go in and investigate, and the attorney investigated with his staff, and they came back with this 74-page report. It was just released on Monday. And based on those recommendations, some of which will be implemented, um, it was decided that, you know, they were going to have to close 
the Ed, it's the Edna Mahan Correctional Facility for Women. Um, it's in Clinton, New Jersey, and they have come to the conclusion that it will be shut down and um, either another new facility will be built. Um, it could be several smaller facilities could be built. They could take one of the men's facilities that's been shut down and retrofit that and open it up for women. Um, but it, but it's kind of it's gotten to the point right now where the situation is so dire that everything's going back to square one, as if we're just starting a correctional system from day one. Oh well, yeah. look, it, I'm glad you're bad. I'm glad you're uh, in key positions there, uh, Kathy. Uh, you've always been very special to us here uh, and being a guest on this show and. And as we were maneuvering our way through the maze, if you will, of, of problems uh, within the criminal justice system in this country, uh, you were a true voice uh, to our listeners and, and to this radio show. We thank you so much. Uh, I didn't know you were well, thank you. quite that busy, uh, but you're busy. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's yes, good to know because someone with a heart and a passion for people that we got from you, um, that, that's, that's awesome. Um, uh, Andrea, I don't know how much of the show that you've heard. Andrea was sharing her passions. Uh, it's people like Andrea who, from a little girl, uh, had a passion and a drive to do what was good in law enforcement uh, in Colombia. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people like her, people like the commander, people like yourself that are driven by this type of passion uh, is the only way we can see change coming. Because if you don't put the good people in position that care and that have a level of integrity, and I always thought you did because you have suffered so many things, so you can identify with what inhumane is because you've lived it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andrea saw so many things. I can't imagine. We, haven't, we just scratched the surface with her in, down there in Columbia, um, but she's an officer here locally, the commander over his career, the things that he has seen. Uh, folks, look, these are the people who you need in place, uh, people that have this type of uh, skin, if you will, that can say, look, this just isn't about going to work and getting a paycheck. Uh, this is about making a difference. Andrea, what would you say to that? I think that's correct. Um, when I became a law enforcement officer, I honestly never looked at the pay. I wanted to do it because I wanted to do a difference. And when I got into the interview and they asked me why you want to be a police officer, that was my passion. I want to protect people. And I even told him, I don't know, I don't even know how much you guys pay. I just want to become right, a police officer. <laughs> Commander. Well, I, uh, Ms. Morris, I just read your your story and it's absolutely disgusting and horrible. And I'm I I'm sorry that you had to suffer through that. But it seems like. Um, the people who are the loudest and advocates of change are usually the people who have been victimized. Um, you you were definitely victimized. Uh, Andrea saw things that victimized her in Colombia, and I've been through some experiences that, that kind of sort of shaped my opinion as well. And I just wish that uh, um, well, I wish you luck, and I and I I commend you for you know. Make taking a stand because I feel like that's what a lot of people, a lot of a lot more people need to do, is um, you know take these stands and do the advocacy work. So I applaud you. Thank you. 
And Kathy, any word on, uh, I know Rikers was a big uh, issue, a major issue. Any Are you connected mm-hmm. anywhere with what's going on there on Rikers? There's been... Yes. Um, what's going on there? The, the mayor, Bill de Blasio, who originally came up with the plan to close Rikers down, is in the final stretch of his administration. They will be putting in a new mayor. And right now, it's it's uncertain whether that new mayor will want to pursue the continued yeah. closure of of Rikers. Um, they've hit some roadblocks within the community. Um, you know, of course, there's you know the the very strong opposition of not being you know in my backyard. So you know, well, where are we going to put these? Because they they want to have smaller facilities but be community based. And there's just a lot, a lot of opposition. I don't so opposition it's definitely going to be it. no opposition of putting a facility in somebody's neighborhood. No, I got you on that. Yeah, uh, it's it's we, uh, it's like, once they close Rikers, it's they have to be put someplace. So they have designated um, four or five boroughs in which they will be putting new, well, facilities, building on an existing facility, um, things like that. Um, And that would break the population down into smaller, you know, units and buildings. Well, I think think Um, the big, I'm sorry, Kathy, Uh, go ahead. But, you know, it's it's great to talk about all this, this new building and this and that. The biggest problem is if you don't get the mindset of the correctional officers and staff to change, there will be no change. It'll just be in a different building. Right. Yeah, and and that's what I was going to say. I was going to say, Kathy, the the building and closing down Rikers and, and rebuilding or zoning, whatever it is they're doing out there. The culture of Rikers Island, we know about Khalif Browder. Um, yes. There's not a moment that I've mentioned his name where I don't become emotional for what that young man suffered in taking his life after a ordeal at Rikers where his mother heard his body hit the that side of the house as he hung himself out of fear of going back to Rikers Island. That problem is bigger than a building, than reconstruction. It is about the culture that we, you and I have discussed over and over again. When do we get the culture of this type of behavior changed? And the only way you're gonna do that is that you have to hold correctional officers accountable. It's not about the building, it's about the conduct of officers that are doing what mm-hmm. they're doing. So. Uh, Again, I applaud you, uh, Kathy, for what you're doing. Uh, your passion is the same as it was the first day you came on this show, and we cannot say thank you enough uh, for what you are doing. Um, we did not want to – I know it was a last-minute call to you uh, to bring you on. I don't want to – I want to be respectful of your time, your schedule, your evening. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do want to hear more from you. I want to be, be in touch offline. Absolutely. I want to hear more, and I want to give mm-hmm. you an invitation also to come back here and will we deal with what you guys are doing down there and have a show dedicated to that and let you share and put on the table uh, your passion and your vision uh, for what's being put in place out there in New Jersey. We appreciate it so much. 
Well, thank you, and I would appreciate that as well. Okay. We will be in touch, Kathy. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Thanks for taking okay. time expectantly to join us, okay? All right. Have a good evening, everybody. Bye. Thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a quick break. Um, Kathy Morse is, a, in my opinion, uh, a, a hero of justice, a advocate of the finest kind, of the truest kind. Um, and, and Commander, you said you read a little bit uh, on her story. Uh, it it is absolutely uncomprehendable what this lady suffered, um, and she didn't hesitate, nor did she ever hold back of sharing specifically in detail uh, what she went through and suffered at the at Brackers Island. So, for her to be where she is uh, in those type of positions uh, is you got the right person there. So. Um, she's a good lady. Yeah, that that, that was uh, <clears throat> that's one of the harder uh, crimes that I've read about to certainly understand, and then you know understand that a human being suffered those kinds of things. Yep. It's difficult, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to come back uh, probably with the final segment of the show um, tonight. Commander Couch, Andrea, Officer Andrea. I don't think I've addressed you as that, but I will go forward, Officer. Uh, Andrea, that has really enlightened us tonight on the condition, the state of the union of law enforcement. And I'll tell you what, we got a, we got an uphill battle to climb. We got a hill to climb and it's uphill. But is it possible? Is it reachable? I would have to say it is. But you got to have more people that have the passion and the drive that our two guests have tonight as well as Kathy and other advocacy organizations that say, look, we're in for the fight. AJC Radio, Just Cause Organization, is definitely in that fight with you. Ladies and gentlemen, this is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Look, right now, uh, while you look at this on your screen in your hand or on your computer, there's somebody just like you who's sitting in a prison cell. And they didn't do much more than you did, you know, some crazy weekend. You didn't get caught. They got caught. And they can never get uncaught. The United States of America is now the number one incarcerator of human beings in the world, in the history of the world. Uh, we have about 5% of the world's population. We have 25% of the world's prisoners. Um, we are, we have more people locked up than China. China, who has a billion people, they got fewer prisoners than we do. You know, a lot of times people say, well, if you don't want to do the time, don't do the crime. Really? Have, have you ever committed a crime? You got people who are doing more drugs in on college campuses and uh, uh, yacht clubs, country clubs. We all know that's going on, but the SWAT team never shows up there. The SWAT team shows up in the housing projects where you got poorer people doing fewer drugs, and those people go to prison. But think about it. What if one of the times when you were breaking the law, when you had something illegal in your pocket, in your car, at your party, the police had kicked in those doors, would you want to be known for the rest of your life based on what happened that night? That is what is happening to millions of people. If rich folks' kids get in trouble, they go to rehab. Poor folks' kids get in trouble. They go to prison and you spend $100,000 per year per kid to lock a kid up. 
when you could have spent a fraction of that and turned them into a NASA scientist, turned them into a, a fashion icon. When people come home from prison, they're not given the opportunity to start over. You leave a physical prison and you go into a social prison where you can't get a job, you can't get a student loan, you can't rent an, rent an apartment. How are people supposed to start over? And what happens to neighborhoods when you take a disproportionate number of people out for minor offenses and you send them back home with no hope and no opportunity? There are no more excuses to have this horrible system continue when there is now finally bipartisan agreement that it is a tragedy to do this. Not only do you have President Obama and the Democrats, you now actually have uh, people like Paul Ryan, Coke Industries, Newt Gingrich, all saying the same thing. We are locking up too many people. We're wasting too much money. We're, we're wasting too much genius in America, and it's time to do something. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now, add a wrongful conviction to that. Life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause today, 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children. As they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight, as this show has been one of extreme importance. Uh, we deal with the conduct of individuals who wear the badge. Uh, that is something that's critically important. Let me be clear on this statement that to our listeners, to the officers that honor the badge, uh, two of them are in our studio tonight, and many, many more uh, are out there in our communities across this country. We say thank you for your service. We, as an advocacy organization, are forced at times to deal with very difficult conversations. We are forced to address the negative as well as the good. In this particular case, the good that is being done, we take nothing away from that. But because of what we have seen and continue to see with officers who do not honor the badge, it is our responsibility to speak to that. 
we are very much aware that all officers are not bad. All officers are not dealt or dealing with a lack of integrity. Uh, to you, we say thank you for your service, and we appreciate all that you do. But we are in a position, and we are responsible to call out those things that are not good, that are not right, that become a hardship to citizens across this country. And uh, to Andrea's point, around the globe, um, we will do our best to speak to these issues. That is what we are, we are supposed to do. Uh, Andrea and I were speaking on the break regarding Khalif Browder as Kathy Morse came on, uh, who feels really the pain of Khalif Browder. Uh, we're going to play a clip, and then we're going to talk about it. Andrea had some, some thoughts on it, and we want to hear her, her position on that as well as the commanders. Let's play the clip. We turn now to another tragic story about a young man who learned the hard way about the troubles plaguing America's criminal justice system. Khalif Browner was arrested at 16, never convicted of a crime, never had a trial, but spent more than three years in one of the most violent jails in the country. Tonight, here is Khalif in his own words. You're supposed, you're supposed to be innocent to prove guilty, but the way the system is, is you're guilty to prove innocent. Little did we know, Khalif Browder was already dying inside the day we met him. At the easy age of 22, he'd already learned more about America's criminal justice system and endured more than any soul should ever have to. That's Khalif there on the floor inside Rikers Island, New York City's most notorious jail, beaten by a gang of fellow inmates all caught on camera. At the age of 16, he was arrested and sent here for allegedly stealing a backpack. It was like, how long on earth? We were beaten, stomped by the, by the correctional officers, and they were just beating on me. They were just beating on me. Beatings captured on surveillance video obtained by the New Yorker magazine, which first brought Khalif's story to light. In this video, we see him being escorted to the prison shower. He appears to speak to the guard, who in seconds is seen slamming him into a wall and then to the ground. And I cry myself to sleep because it's like, I want to go home, and it's like, they're not letting me go home. To go home, Khalif's mother, Benita Brown, needed to post bail of $3,000, money she says she just didn't have. What was your reaction when you heard that your 16-year-old boy was being sent to Rikers Island? My heart dropped. You know, I had heard so many horror stories about Rikers, and all I could picture was him getting hurt in there. Court records show Khalif had attempted suicide at least six times, spent 1,110 days behind bars, more than 800 of those in solitary confinement. His court date postponed more than 30 times. He endured all this having never been given a trial, never convicted of a crime. Finally, in June of 2013, all charges against Khalif were dismissed. But his experience exposed a troubled criminal justice system and the brutality of life behind bars. I think at some point, almost a reckless disregard by the prosecutors in this case. They didn't care, Byron. They saw his file. They saw that he was in jail, and he'd probably take a plea, and they were hoping he'd take a plea. They just told me that if I plead guilty, I would release from jail that same day. But I didn't do it. You're not going to make me say I did something just so I could go home. When we first met him November of last year, he was doing better, he said. Earned his GED, started classes at Bronx Community College, pulling a 3.56 GPA. But the psychological trauma from jail had taken its toll. 
And when he first came home, he would just walk the four corners of the driveway. You hear animals do that have been confined to a space. Yes, he did it. And I had to watch my baby go through all of that. In the last year, Khalif grew depressed, deeply paranoid. You know, deep down, I'm a mess. I feel like I'm a grown old man. And then two Saturdays ago, two years after his release from jail, Khalif Browder hanged himself with an air conditioner cord in his home in the Bronx. He was 22. I didn't know what to do. I, can you imagine finding your son and he's hanging with his head back? Khalif's death made national news and messages of outrage mixed with sympathy flooded social media. John Legend wrote in an op-ed that New York failed Khalif. Lena Dunham Instagrammed his photo and called for reform. Our interview with Khalif went viral on Facebook. What we now know is that Khalif was due in court to face new charges of disorderly conduct the week he took his own life. His family said he was scared to go back into jail. By now, the beatings he endured in Rikers have been seen millions of times online. What did Rikers do to your son? It destroyed him. It destroyed him mentally. Has anyone apologized to you from Rikers? No. From the prosecutor's office? No. What do you hope happens now? I want them to be responsible, to admit that it was their fault that my son is dead. He spent three years in, in hell. It sounds like you're in that hell now. I will be in hell until the day I die because I found my son hanging. If your child is murdered, you you have a, an immediate anger towards that person and you want that person found, you know, and, and pay for what they did to your child. It's not one person. It's a whole system that destroyed my son. And I want them all to pay. And I deeply wish we hadn't lost him, but he did not die in vain. New York did away with solitary confinement for 16 and 17-year-olds. Plans were announced to fix crowded dockets in courts to ensure the right to a speedy trial. There are also calls for change to the cash bail system. Currently, only 12% of defendants in New York City make bail. We're in a quest for justice right now, Byron. Paul Prestia, who helped Khalif file his civil suit against the city, says it's not enough. Reforms are all nice and well, but admit you did something wrong here, because that was always Khalif's message. How many young men have to go through this? 99% of the critics will talk all that junk. I promise you, they wouldn't have the courage to do the job that the correction officers do. Bernie Carrick knows the system from both sides. The former chief of the New York City Police Department, he also ran Rikers Island for years. And as a convicted felon, he spent time in solitary confinement. As someone that spent 60 days inside solitary confinement, it creates paranoia. It makes you insane. But he cautions the city against bowing to public pressure and implementing changes, he says, that could put Rikers correction officers and inmates in danger. If you take solitary confinement away from the correction officials, you're going to see a major, major increase in violence. These are kids that come from gangs. These are kids that ran the streets. I think is very dangerous. So what would you do? What, what were I your think, suggestions to improve think, Rikers Island? I think you keep that. You charge the staff that violate the law, and they're locked up. It's not hard to imagine the life he might have led if he'd made it. I have the medal hanging on my bed. 
You see it in the remnants of the life and the people he left behind, like Elizabeth Pyams, program director at Bronx Community College, who worked closely with Khalif. She says she's working on getting Khalif his associate degree posthumously. What do you want the world to remember of your son? To remember him for the stand-up person that he was. He was a good person. The kind of person who turned down a plea bargain on principle. whose story may help save others like him. If I would have just been guilty, then my story would have been never been heard. Nobody would have took the time to listen to me. I'd have been just another criminal. Casualty, collateral damage, if you will, of a failed system. The words of his mother was that this wasn't a person. You go after that person, you could require some type of accountability. But her words that the system, this is a system that failed her son, is responsible for the death of her son. Heart-wrenching every time we hear it. Andrea, I want to get your thoughts. I know this was important to you. What are your thoughts when you hear that and what you know about Khalif Brown? You know, I learned about him. I learned about him when I, before I became a cop. And I cried. <laughs> yes. Painful. To see a human being going through that. A juvenile. Yes. I wish I could have done something for him. But he's done a lot. He's brought up his, his story. He has opened up people's eyes and perspective. Yes. And... I wish I would have met him, talked to him. He had passion to change the system and to bring his story to our justice could happen better. Yes. I start learning a little bit more and more and more and more. And like you said, yeah, the criminal justice fell him in every level from the investigation to the court system to his correctional times investigators fail um there was a video there was a camera where the crime happened the investigators never collected that video because they target him from the beginning and they thought they were gonna get away with it and he fought he fought and he fought um my heart goes for him his family his mom died fighting for him um so it's yeah i wish i could have done something for him and it's disgusting how the criminal justice did that to him um he became a completely different person as his mother said before he went to jail um and when he came out of it he didn't know what to do he was afraid uh he didn't know how to communicate with people and how to show them okay 
how to try to get that support because all he learned was that violence was the way to do it because he was in isolation yes. and he did he all he, the way that he learned how to talk to people socialize it was out the window when he went to isolation and when he went to prison uh, or jail yeah. yeah so um he's a very i'm very passionate about that story and um and i'm thankful that he was able to bring it up to people's attention because the story is is still being told people are still talking I went to college at 3.5 great point average uh, kid promising future just a good kid commander um your thoughts <clears throat> i cannot believe that happened in this country i'm shocked it's disgusting and when you hear people like bernard carrick talking about being in solitary confinement and then right after that he said it says it causes paranoia but keep it Yeah. Seriously? I mean, that's disgusting. Yes. I mean, you know, 16 they're going to take it away for just 16 and 17-year-old people when the human brain still develops into the 20s, into the 20s of, you know, in age. It's disgusting. I can't believe it happened. And you know what? If I had if I could do anything, people always say, "Oh, well, it's the system." Well, yeah, the system, the system is made up of people. People in the system need to be held accountable, which hopefully can change the system. Sure. That's not a system. That's that's a murder machine. Yes. It's disgusting. No, it really is. Um, and I, I also agree with your position on Mr. Carrick. Um, to have an issue with those that cry out against such behavior. Um, solitary confinement apparently uh, didn't have the impact on him uh, to make such a statement to me is reckless um, to the commander's point. I think I think Mr. Carrick has been tainted by the culture that he is a part of. Yes, absolutely. It's unacceptable. You can't say to the commander's point and to and, and Andrea, your emotion is warranted. Your tears the tears around this table are warranted um, when you hear such things. We've left feeling for one another. We've left that. Perhaps if more tears were shed, more things could happen. More people would not give up and press against this type of reckless behavior. I agree with the commander in regards to the system is made up of individuals who operate that system. It should be removed. And to Kathy Morse's point that this mayor, Bellasio, is, is at the end of his administration, you have another mayor that will be voted in. They may say, well, we're going to keep Rutgers. This is the culture. This is the system. This is the the way things are done. So what a person, you have to accomplish these things during your time because it can easily be undone by the next administration. That's whether it's the president of the United States or it's your local uh, government. Uh, 
but I believe this to be the, to be true. As Andrea, you talked about the protests going on in Colombia uh, for peace, for all these things that need to happen. Um, that's what they do in other countries, and usually things happen. America has not reached the level of protest as they should, in my opinion. Your thoughts on that as we close out, Andrea? I think every person has the right to protest. I do believe that there should not be violence through protest. Because there, there has been a lot of destruction. Yes. yes. For peace, mm -hmm. people have worked for, and definitely not violence. Protest, yes. But protest the injustice yes. that happens. And what you have, I think, unfortunately, you have groups that are sincerely protesting the injustice of things that happen, and then you have other groups that come in that are violent. And it puts a, a negative look on protest when that's not the case. Um, listen. This conversation can go on and on because it's that big of an issue. So every person listening to this show tonight, reflect and look inside of yourself of what you can do to make a difference. To Andrea, local law enforcement officer, I say a very special thank you for taking time out of your schedule, out of your busy day. For what you do, our hat, we, tip, we tilt our hats off to you. Uh, to the commander, uh, our respect is noted uh, for what you do and what you Continue uh, with the push of your nonprofit, accountability, transparency. Uh, please know both of you are always welcome here at ABC Radio. Uh, we're thankful for uh, for you for you guys and, and for adding to this show to our listeners. I cannot say thank you enough. That means a whole lot to us. Uh, until next time, ladies and gentlemen, this is AJC Radio. Andrea, Commander uh, Couch. Um, to Kathy Morse, um, to all the comments around the table tonight, guys, a very special thank you. Uh, and we will continue to push change. And that's what we have to do. This is AJC Radio signing off for one more week. Good night, America. We'll talk to you next time. Take care.